0: All right, so if you have a Bible, open it up to uh, the book of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews. If you don't have a Bible, go ahead and grab one of those hardback black Bibles off the seat back in front of you. You can find the book of Hebrews on page 941. Uh, While you're turning there, I want to invite you to an evangelism training event that we're going to have here on Saturday, January 28th at 10 a.m. So if you want to be equipped and grow your ability to share your faith, Uh, then come on January 28th, and we'll help you do that. The book of Hebrews, beginning today, our new series that's going to take a majority of this year, uh, walking through this wonderful book together. Hebrews chapter 1 begins, Long ago, and many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us great insight and wisdom to understand it, and that we would leave away absolutely amazed and astonished at the wonder of your son. It's for his name we pray. Amen. Have you ever been very excited about something? Maybe it was a new side project or or a side hustle or something you were passionate about. Maybe a new set of beliefs or a new idea that you'd heard or a new way to think about the world. You were really excited about something, and you brought it to someone else, and you shared it with them, and they responded with either indifference or even hostility. Isn't that so painful? When we open ourselves up, and we share something that we're very excited about, and the people that we care about aren't excited about those things, don't care about those things. Maybe even hostile about those things. And the more dearly we hold those convictions, then the more painful that thing is, that rejection is. And the more dearly we hold the people who are rejecting us, the more painful their rejection can be. And often, even our faith in Jesus can lead to rejection and persecution from the people that we care the most about. This was certainly the case in the first century, when when Christianity was a new movement. And there was one particular community where, where a group of Jewish background people were coming to faith in Christ, and they held this belief so dearly and preciously that this Christ that they had found, and when they shared it with their families and their friends and their co-workers, they were rejected. To be a Christian from a Jewish background in the first century was incredibly costly. Their families would have rejected them. They would have been banned from the synagogue gatherings. They would have gotten fired from their jobs and forced to work uh, horrible, hardworking jobs. And it was really hard. And a lot of these men and women, these Christians from Jewish backgrounds, under the weight of all this persecution, were saying, I don't think I can do this anymore. And so one of their pastors heard about this urgent need, and he preached a sermon. And the sermon was so wonderful that the church copied it down. And they sent it out to other churches, and they preserved it. And that sermon is still preserved today in our Bibles, and it's called the book of Hebrews. The main idea of the book of Hebrews is this, Jesus is better than anything so don't let go of him the original readers were tempted to return to the to their old ways of judaism to abandon christ and return to their old ways and so the message of hebrews to them is jesus is better than anything so don't let go of him and in a similar way today we are tempted to abandon jesus sometimes In overt ways, we're tempted to abandon Jesus. Maybe cultural pressures lead us to compromise on our beliefs. As a trend of faith deconstruction becomes more and more popular in our culture, we're often tempted to define what we believe by subtracting things that are difficult instead of positively constructing our faith around the truth. We're tempted to abandon Jesus in overt ways, but also, and perhaps more dangerously for many of you, we're tempted to abandon Jesus in more subtle ways. We're often tempted to substitute the message of Jesus for a set of values, which, by the way, is never fully representative of the values of Christianity. So sometimes substituting Jesus for a set of values looks like minimizing his message to say God is love, treat others as you want to be treated. And that's basically what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that's true and good and wonderful, but it's not the message of Jesus in whole. Others of us might be tempted to minimize the message of Jesus and substitute it for a different set of cultural values. Specifically, holding fast and standing firm on hot-button cultural issues like marriage today. And we say, that's my Christianity, fighting the culture. And that's not the message of Jesus either. That's a substitution, and it's a poor one at that. Not to say that loving others or, or standing firm aren't valuable, wonderful things, but it's not the message of Jesus, and it's not going to hold you fast. The only thing that's going to hold you fast in the midst of a really hard climate is to look at Jesus, to see his wonder, to believe that he's better than anything, and so you can't let go of him. You can't let go of him. That's the message of Hebrews. He's better than anything else that might draw your attention or your love away from him. So don't let go of him. Tonight we're going to, or this morning we're going to read the introduction to the book of Hebrews, the first three verses, where the author is going to introduce us to some of the main themes of the book, and he's going to share specifically three reasons why Jesus is better than anything, and therefore why you should not let go of him under any circumstances and no matter any cost. So the first one of those points, the first reason that Hebrews is going to give you to not abandon Jesus is there is no clearer teacher than Jesus. If you want to know the truth about God, if you want to know the truth about this world, if you want to know how God would have you to live, then look to Jesus. The book begins, verse 1, long ago and many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers, by the prophets. Remember, the original audience of the book of Hebrews was Christians in the first century who would come from a Jewish background. And that Jewish background had a deep history and tradition of God's love and God's speaking to his people through the prophets, preserved today in our Old Testament. And everything that God had done up to that point was true and wonderful and crucial, but it wasn't finished verse 2 but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son for 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 a long history god has been speaking to his people through the prophets and now in these last days there's a sense of climax there's a sense of completion in these last days he's spoken to us by his son the same message of the same god has been completed with the coming of jesus and what jesus came didn't contradict anything that the, our fathers had heard from the prophets because god had spoken to the spoken to their fathers by the prophets he spoke to the first father adam and his wife Eve, to whom God promised that one of their children would one day rise up and crush Satan forever and set his people free from all sin and death and suffering and evil. God spoke to Father Abraham, the patriarch of Israel, and God promised Abraham. God spoke. To the prophets, to our fathers, spoke to Abraham and promised him that from you, every family, every nation on the earth would be blessed through your offspring. God spoke to Abraham's great-grandson, Judah, and promised that from your descendants will come a king who will rule not just over Israel, but over every nation. God spoke to the fathers through the prophet Moses who predicted a greater prophet would come, who would not just lead God's people out of Egypt, but would lead God's people out of sin because he would write God's law on their heart. He would show them and teach them and change them so that they were able to love God with all of their heart. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, to Adam, to Abraham, to Judah, to Moses, to David, God spoke and promised that a son of David would come and reign over Israel and over all nations forever, and he would reign with infinite kindness and grace so that all injustice would become a distant memory. God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, and in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son. Everything in the Old Testament has been leading to this point. Not a word of it was wasted. Every jot and tittle is meant to point you forward to the wonderful news of Jesus. And his work, to live a perfect life, to die for sinners and raise victoriously from the grave, and then to rule over the earth forever. And who is this Jesus? Verse 3 says, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He's the radiance of God's glory. Meaning that everything that Jesus did, everything that Jesus does, everything that Jesus says, everything that Jesus thinks, everything that Jesus is perfectly reflects the wonder and the greatness of what God is like. And that was important because we can't know God on our own. Did you know that 80% of the oceans on the earth are unexplored today? We've never been there. Because they're too deep. We can't get there. It's unfathomable. We don't have the technology, we don't have the ability, we don't have the science to get to the bottom of the Marianas Trench. And in an infinitely greater way, we don't have the ability to know God on our own. We can't just keep exploring and thinking and reasoning and hope that maybe we'll come to some semblance of the truth. We can't go that deep. Our only hope of knowing God is that God would make himself known. And he's done that through the person of his son, Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. Jesus, the Son, has made him known. Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. And why is he able to reveal God? Because he is God. Verse 3 continues, he's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Christ is able to share and to show God because he shares in God's nature. He shares in God's nature. What is a nature? We talk about human nature all the time. Oh, that's just human nature. What does that mean? What is God's nature? Well, a nature, God's nature is that which makes God, God. It's what makes him who he is. All of his attributes, everything. If you could get to the essence of God, that would be his nature. And the son shares in the nature of the father. They don't merely share the same attributes as if they're similar. They don't merely share the same characteristics as if they were of the same species. They share in the same nature because they are one. If they merely were the same species, that would mean there are three gods. There's not three gods. Long ago, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets and made very clear there's only one God. Uh There is only one God. And when verse 3 calls him the exact imprint of the nature, that doesn't mean he's, he's a copy of the Father or derived from the Father. It doesn't mean that. It means that their nature is perfectly the same, identical. So what does that mean? Does that mean they're the same? And that sometimes God wears the father hat? And sometimes he wears the son hat and he does saving stuff and is kind to people? No. There's three persons. We believe in one God who has eternally existed in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So is your head spinning a little bit? One of my favorite authors was a man named Augustine who lived in the 300s. And he said, maybe, probably not actually, but it's still a good quote. He said, if you try to, if you try to deny the Trinity, you lose your soul. If you try to explain the Trinity, you lose your mind. Maybe that's how you're feeling. But this is a major theme in the book of Hebrews, which is why right out of the gate, the author goes here and he gets into these deep things like nature and person. And so if you're not understanding all of it yet, that's okay. We are going to plunge the depths of this together as we walk through Hebrews. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to learn together. The main thing you need to know now is that there is one God. Jesus Christ is fully God. And Jesus Christ is not God the Father. Friends, Jesus is better than anything. No one and nothing can teach you about God better than Jesus can. Jesus is better than anyone, than anything. No one could guide you to live life to the fullest better than Jesus can. Jesus is better than anything, so don't let go of him. I love to read self-improvement books. I read Atomic Habits by James Clear a couple years ago. It changed my life. It's wonderful. It was interesting, though. uh, If you try to get his books from the library right now, you can't because it's January and everyone's turning over a new leaf and everyone's trying really hard to come up with some Atomic Habits. But the thing is, Christ is different than any self-improvement book. Christ is better than any guru or teacher. He is the supreme teacher because he perfectly reveals God to you. Friends, the biggest problem with self-help books is that there's only so much help that we can give to ourselves. We need truth revealed to us from the outside. Your feelings are a horrible guide for this troubling world. Your feelings are a troubling guide. They're a bad authority because our feelings have been corrupted by sin. And so we can't properly feel our way to the truth. And often we love the wrong things. Feelings are a bad authority. Mantras are a poor helper. Because we don't need more motivation We don't need to muster up the greatness that's inside of us. We need to see the greatness that's revealed in Jesus. Jesus is better than anything, so don't let go of him. Often I mentioned deconstruction earlier. Often people deconstruct their faith because of all this cognitive dissonance. What they've been told about the Bible, what they've been told about God just doesn't fit and doesn't gel with what they see in the world or what they see in the church. And I think that those experiences are genuine and I don't want to belittle them or downplay them at all. But I also want to say with great clarity that the answers are available and that we can seek the truth. And there's no clearer teacher than Jesus. Take him at his word. Believe him. Don't run from him. Embrace him. There's nothing better than Jesus, so don't let go of him. There is no clearer teacher than Jesus. Number two, the second reason why he's better than anything and so why you can't let go of him is because there is no stronger king than Jesus. Jesus' power is unparalleled. So verse two continues. He's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things. Friends, history has an end. And by that, I don't just mean it has a finish line, that eventually it's going to stop. It does have that. It does have an end in that sense. It does have an expiration date. But at the same time, when I say that history has an end, I mean that history has a goal. Everything on this ball of mud and all of the suffering and all the glories and all the wonders and all the blessings that we experience are leading to one point, which is Christ inheriting all things. So an heir looks forward to a future inheritance and says, all of the riches of my father will be mine one day. And one day Christ will take his rightful place as the ruler and owner of all things. Christ is the goal of it all. And one day, his reign as king over all things will be fully realized and seen and savored. But verse 2 continues. Jesus isn't just the end of history, he's the beginning of history. He's the heir of all things through whom also he created the world, everything, friends, that you could see or feel or touch or think has been created by the sun. There's two categories, things that are made, things that aren't made, and everything in the made category has been created by Jesus. Verse 3, again, he is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature and... He upholds the universe by the word of his power. How did this world come to be? By Christ. And how does this world continue? By Christ. It's the word of Christ's power that stops the earth from spiraling into the sun today. Some of you are like, it's gravity. Not true, gravity. But who do you think invented gravity? Gravity. Jesus. Some people believe that God created the world and he defines some rules like gravity and then he just lets it go. He like winds up the toy and lets it run down the aisle. Maybe someday it'll run into the wall. And that's not the case. Christ is intimately involved in all of creation today, upholding the universe by the word of his power. Uh This proves Christ's power because he is strong enough to hold it all together. Without Christ's word sustaining everything created, our world would be shakier than a Jenga tower. But because Christ is powerfully at work, the world is upheld. And it also proves Christ's authority because he upholds the universe by his word. He speaks and creation obeys. He's not having some cosmic wrestling match against chaos and the forces of evil and against other gods. He is speaking and creation holds together. All matter obeys the word of his voice. And then our passage ends, Hebrews 1.3. He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He sits down, friends, on a throne. At the right hand of God, he has equal authority with God the Father. In the beginning, Christ created it all. In the present, Christ is sustaining it all. In the future, Christ will inherit and rule over all. No one and nothing can compare to Jesus' strength, so don't let go of him. Christ is not just good intentions, or good vibes, or positive energies. Uh-huh. Christ is actually able to help you. Uh-huh. And not only that, but he's ready to help you. Three reasons that Jesus is better than anything. There's no clearer teacher than Jesus. There's no stronger king than Jesus. And finally, there is no kinder savior than Jesus. Jesus has the power and the compassion to help us with our most urgent needs. Verse 3 continues. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What does Jesus do with sinners? He purifies them. He purifies them. This is a reference in Hebrews to ritual uncleanness laws from the Old Testament. There were a lot of circumstances that would render a person ritually unclean in Israel, including and especially their own sin. Hebrews is going to get into a lot more detail about all of that and what it means and how Jesus completes it all. What you need to know now is that sin makes us dirty. Jesus came to wash us clean. Why do we need purification? Two reasons. First of all, because you are dirty. You were created, friends, by Christ with no design flaws. You were like the finest masterpiece hanging in the National Gallery of Art. No flaws. But we've gone against God's design. And so, even though we were created with no design flaws, like the world's most stunning masterpiece, the portraits have been defaced. Except, unlike a painting, we've done the defacing ourselves. Our defiling comes from our own hands. This is why sin can feel nasty, because it's going against your design. It's like taking a bath with a toaster. It's not going to work out. It ruins things. Why do we need to be purified? Because we're dirty. And also because we're divided. We don't purely love God. Our hearts are divided. We love ourselves. We love the treasures of this earth. We love other things more than we love God. But we were created for Christ. He's the heir of all things. We were not created to live for our own pleasure. Why do we need to be purified? Because we're dirty and because we're divided. And how can we be purified? Because Christ made purification for sins. He came to make things right again. He came to restore the paintings that have been so nastily defiled. He came to redeem the rebels that had been so nastily unfaithful that they didn't deserve anything but death. And friends, those defaced paintings, those nasty rebels, they were me and you. Every person has rebelled against God's glorious design. And as a result, every one of us is worthy of death apart from God forever. But Jesus came to bring us back. Jesus came to bring us back. Jesus lived a perfectly pure life. He was never sullied by the corruption of sin. He was never divided in his heart, always perfectly loyal to God. And Jesus' life ended with death on a cross where he really was brutally murdered in the place of sinners Christ himself, 1 Peter says, Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The punishment that we've earned for our sin, for defacing our own paintings, for running against the almighty king of kings, the punishment that we have earned was poured out on Christ in our place. But because death could not hold him, It was not the end of his story. He rose victoriously from the grave three days later. He's still alive today, ruling and reigning over all of the earth and all of creation. Nothing will be able to stop him. So look to him and find life and peace and hope and faith. Freedom from sin. Friends, you don't have to be defined by your darkest secrets anymore. Because Jesus sees them, knows them with even more clarity than you do, and died to make things right again. Bible teacher Paul Tripp says this, Jesus publicly bore our secrets, guilt, and shame, so we would never have to live in secret guilt or shame again. He made purification for sins, and then he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Do you know when you sit down, when your work is finished? Your sins have been paid for. There's nothing left to do. So look to Jesus and find healing. Find life. Jesus is better than anything. No one will ever compare to his ability or his willingness to help you. So don't Let go of him. A lot of people today, even in the name of Jesus, preach condemnation to filthy sinners like you. Christ offers something much better. Purity and salvation. A cure to your deepest need. So if you're not a Christian today, maybe you've heard that message. Maybe you've even deconstructed that message that Jesus preaches condemnation to dirty sinners like you. You are a dirty sinner. I'm a dirty sinner. But Christ came to make things right, to purify you. He sees you nasty, covered with all the soot and filth of sin. And he doesn't wrinkle his nose and say, I don't want that. He says, I'm going to wash you. I'm gonna get my hands dirty to clean you. Hands stained not with the not with dirt from your back, but with blood from his own veins. Christ came, friends, to offer purification for sins. Friends, I've heard a lot of people say, I hate sin. I hate sin in my life. I hate that I watch pornography. I hate that I get angry. I I hate that I'm impatient. I hate that I'm not thankful. I hate that I'm dishonest. I hate that I'm selfish with my roommates. I hate it. We ought to hate sin because it's nasty rebellion against God. But friends, Christ came to deal with it. He did not come to point and laugh. He did not come to shout with frustration. He came to make you clean. So Christians, I'm going to invite the music team up now. And Christians, Christians, question to you, what message do you offer to a lost and dying world? Condemnation or restoration and purity at the gentle hands of Jesus? And those of you that aren't Christians, have you believed this message? Have you received healing from the greatest teacher, greatest king, greatest savior who's ever lived, who ever will live. Have you received healing from the gentle hands of Jesus? And if not, don't leave here today without being made right with God. Because Jesus offers healing that's free and full and never expiring. Friends, don't walk anymore in the guilt of your sin. Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin, not be defined by it anymore, not live for it anymore, but live to righteousness. Jesus is better than anything. Hold on to him by faith and don't let go.